This morning as we open Your Word, we ask that You would open our hearts, our minds, through Your Holy Spirit, lead and guide us, cause each of us, Lord, to glean something from Your Word today that will cause our walk to be stronger, uniting us closer to You, closer together. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. As we started with uh, some of the Christmas messages out of Matthew to begin the book of Matthew as our study uh, on Sunday mornings, we'll be picking up in verse uh, uh, chapter three. And chapter three is the scriptures and referring to that where Matthew refers to John the Baptist. And uh, Matthew picks up right at the beginning of John's ministry. Uh, and I just wanted to share, you know, John the Baptist, uh, if, you, if you look at the chronologies of all the things that are involved, John the Baptist is about six months younger than Jesus. And we get that out of Luke, uh, older, excuse me, thank you, <laughs> uh, older than Jesus. And we get that out of the Gospel of Luke. And as a result, uh, he is... And we learn from the Gospel of Luke, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, we learn that he is the forerunner that was predicted or prophesied that, uh, to Christ. And so his, month, his ministry begins about six months before Jesus comes on the scene and is baptized. And uh, I think it's interesting. The only thing I, I, that I wanted to make as a side note to this is something that's of the Jewish culture of the time was an adult man was not allowed to speak publicly uh, in the reference to the things of the Word of God and the Lord until he was 30 years old. He had to basically earn the right. And I find that interesting. Uh, at 30, John begins to speak, and then, and then six months later, at 30, Jesus comes into the picture. And uh, so they were honoring this uh, tradition of the, of the uh, Hebrew people. They had gone through all of the, the things that children and, and young men must go through to have the right to, to speak uh, both publicly and in the temple in reference to reading and, and talking about the Scriptures. So we pick up John the Baptist in chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able, to raise, uh, is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Quite a powerful beginning of, of John the Baptist and his ministry and the things going on there. He's preaching in the wilderness. First off, just understand the wilderness um, is just that, an area that is relatively uninhabited. Uh, it's, it's where you would find, if you were normally in the wilderness, you would be finding solitude and quiet. Uh, John did not come into the cities at this point. The cities came to him. And so this is where he began his ministry, his preaching as one in the wilderness. And the interesting thing is, I don't, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, what, was he preaching to caravans as they came by? What was, how did the word get spread? It doesn't even tell us. All we know is that as he preached, somehow people came to know there's the guy out in the wilderness. He's preaching uh, a baptism of repentance to prepare the way for one who's coming. He says the one who's coming is even greater than he is. And people were coming from the cities, from the villages, and even the Jordan area, which means from the wilderness areas, the, the nomadic people, they were coming to John and being baptized for repentance of their sins, for forgiveness of their sins. He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven was a uh, common phrase, either the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Kingdom of Heaven used by the Jewish people as an anticipation of uh, what was to come, the thing that they were longing for, the Kingdom of God to come, to take out the Roman soldiers, to reestablish their uh, authority in the, the Palestinian area, and to raise up a kingdom under David. That was what they were thinking in terms of as the Kingdom of Heaven coming on earth. And, and so John the Baptist is saying this Kingdom is coming. And yet he's re asking these people to repent, to prepare for it. And it's interesting what happens that, that uh, uh, he, well, first off, just get the, the understanding. What John is saying is what your fathers and grandfathers and, and ancestors have been waiting for is at hand. It is near. I am here to prepare you to receive it. And the beginning of receiving the kingdom of God and to understand Jesus will be a, a repentant heart. What he's talking about is a heart that knows that sin is real in, 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 a, in the person that all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, that idea of sin being real and the needing to repent. I mean, it's been 400 years without anything literally in a sense of what they were accustomed to as a people, without anything from God. Malachi was the last prophet 400 years earlier. And he left an interesting final prophecy. Uh, if you look at, at Malachi, just a few pages before Matthew, you read the very last two verses of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. He's talking about the coming of, of one who he speaks of earlier, 
uh, in, in chapter 4. Boy, you turn two pages and you miss it all. Or chapter 3, excuse me, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So all of these things that Malachi is saying is there's one that's going to come, he's going to prepare the way, he's going to lead the way. John is that person. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3 is even more explicit. There's one who is coming to... And, uh, to prepare the way of the Lord, preparing the hearts to receive Him. So all of this is a, an amazing picture for me of Old Testament, New Testament continuity. Where Malachi leaves off, Matthew picks up. You know, so often we think of Old Testament and then we say New Testament. And, and really what we say and should be saying is the Word of God. Two definite divisions, Old and New Testament, because of what Christ has done, the covenant that he brings into the world, but still one, the Old Testament, pointing totally and completely towards Christ. A number of years ago, I went through the, the sermon series, The Crimson Thread, uh, following the, or some would call it the Scarlet Thread, following from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, the Scriptures pointing to Christ. John is the last Old Testament prophet. He has come with a final word from God in the sense of pre-Jesus ministry <laughs> prophecy. And it's interesting, I, I, I say Matthew picks up where, where uh, Malachi leaves off, and it's, and it's kind of the same picture that's predict, uh, seen in Luke Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom all is, uh, also He created the world. Again, the continuity. First, He spoke through the prophets, all of it pointing through to the Son, and then He finally speaks through the Son. I put on my notes, and those of you who have heard me often will really understand it, there's not two symphonies. God wrote one symphony before the foundation of the world, and it is being played out through Old and New Testament. All of it's tied together. I think John's appearance is certainly one of, of, of interest. Camel hair and leather belt. I don't know about you, I instantly have a sense of itch. Uh, discomfort. Uh, I've never seen anything actually woven of camel hair, uh, but I have to assume, you know, it's not alpaca. Uh, and so uh, it's something uh, that was used by many uh, who were uh, wanting to pull apart and, and stay focused on God as like sackcloth and ashes almost in a sense. Something that was somewhat uncomfortable, keeping them uh, focused on God. And interestingly enough, John's not the first to wear this. And a lot of times when I say that, people say, well, who else wore it? Elijah. He's coming in the spirit of Elijah, dressed like Elijah. 
Go back to 1 Kings 1.8 if you have time at some point and look at it, but it will tell you that Elijah was dressed in camel hair and a leather belt. His food was typical of a desert dweller, someone who had lived in the wilderness, and that was locust and wild honey. I don't know if any of you have ever had locust and wild honey, but it's pretty much flavorless until you put the honey on it. And uh, the, the locust is the protein, the honey is the, the sugars that your body needs, and uh, it's, it's an amazingly healthy food. Um, I don't eat it by choice. I always think of uh, uh, one of the uh, plays, uh, John on the Island of Patmos. It's a one-man uh, play, and he talks about the locusts. He says the only problem is the little feet getting in between the teeth, you know. Um, you know but uh, uh, it was something that John, was. that was his typical day-to-day food. And it just tells us that he was truly a man of the wilderness. I'd like to jump backwards at this point uh, to Luke uh, chapter uh, 1. The verses that were read this morning in our reading uh, give us the background to John the, to John the Baptist, which we have yet to share this, uh, this year. Well, last year and the beginning of this year. Uh, so I want to look at it again. In verses chapter, uh, chapter, chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, speaking primarily of who Zechariah and Elizabeth are. Zechariah is a priest of the order of Levite. He is uh, in the division of Abijah, which was one of the divisions. You've got to understand the Levitical priesthood is huge. There's well over 20,000 Levites. And the goal of all of them would be to have the opportunity to serve in the temple. And so how do you decide who's going to, to, to serve with so many? Well, each, each division, Abijah being one of them, gets a certain time of the year. And then within each division, the literally you know, thousands in each division, uh, they draw lots to see who gets to go this time. He had drawn the lot. He got to go into the holy place. There's the outer courts, the holy place, the holy of holies. He went in and got to offer the prayers of incense, and it was representative of the prayers of the people, with the number one prayer being basically what we might say today in, in reference to the Christ, Christ coming, Maranatha would be our term, to them would become the kingdom of God. Come the kingdom of God. Come the Messiah. Zechariah, Elizabeth Weiss also, and it's a part is in the Levitical family. Both are seen as righteous before the Lord. And the reason why they are righteous before the Lord isn't because they are sinless. It is because they have kept the commandments, known and offered their 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 offerings of sacrifice. They have been faithful in, in understanding who they are before God in the sense that they need a Savior and are looking forward to Him. And so they're righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Their faith is what's made them righteous, knowing God is going to do something yet. 
Zechariah probably wasn't like any different than anybody else in the sense of what he was anticipating. Big, you understand the Romans just, they really believed that the, 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 the Christ, the Messiah, would come as King David, if you will, and kick out the Romans. And that's, I'm sure, what he was looking forward to as well. But the prayer would be very specific in crying out for the kingdom of God and the Messiah to come. So it's his turn in the verses 8 through 10 tell us it's Zechariah's turn in the temple. It's the hour of incense. It's offering up the prayers of the people. And in verse 11, it says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Every time I talk about a, a person seeing the, an angel come on them at this point in time, the reason for the fear isn't just the suddenness of it. Normally, the idea of an angelic presence meant judgment. Today is the day of judgment. And I wouldn't be surprised if Zachariah says, okay, it's over. <laughs> you know, my turn is up. And Zechariah, so he's troubled. It says, fear came upon him. But in verse 13, the angel says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. knows his name. <laughs> Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, I've heard a lot of scriptures about, well, he, you know, he had given up his prayer probably by this time for a son, but God was honoring that prayer. I don't have a problem with that. But that would not have been the prayers that he was bringing that day. He was bringing the, day, the prayers of, Come, kingdom of God, come Messiah. And his prayers are being heard. And the re how you're going to know this is, guess what? Your wife's going to have a son. And not only is he gonna she going to have a son, which is going to be miraculous by itself, but then we get into the, the amazingness of it. It says, your wife, uh, uh, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. I always stop there just to give my, my quick thought, if you will, on right to life. If a fetus in the womb can be filled with the Holy Spirit, there must be life in the womb, Right? I just enough said for the day, but we know, by the way, because when Mary approaches Elizabeth six months down the road, says that John leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. All of that, just a powerful, powerful picture of life in the womb. This is what he will do. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah, the him being the Messiah. That would have been understood from the prophecies. And he will go before him in the spirit of the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sound familiar? I just read it to you out of Malachi. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. In other words, what is, you know, I need something now, a sign now is really what he's asking for. God gave it to him. He says, your doubt's enough to, to pick this as your sign. You're not going to be able to talk. And he was unable to speak until the dedication of John the Baptist in the temple. At which time, 
the announcement was, you know, they, they said, okay, what's the name of the child? Elizabeth speaks forth, forth with the word John. And they look at her like, that can't be. There's no John in your, your family lineage. And then Zechariah was able to speak. He said, yep, it is John. It be John. The angel's message is just is, is powerful here. He's the one that's going to go before the Lord. No drink. No wine or heavy drink. Uh, similar to a Nazarite vow. It doesn't say Nazarite vow, but the implication is possibly there, which means he wouldn't have cut his hair either. Um, He's going to turn Jews to the Lord. Uh, he's going to go before Jesus or before the Messiah, before the, the Christ, in the spirit of Elijah. Not Elijah, but in the spirit of Elijah. And of course, as we read through all of those scriptures, we find Elizabeth pregnant and John the Baptist later on is born. Thus it begins. Go back to, to Matthew. Again, we've got Jews gathering from all over the area. Again, city, villages, the surrounding wilderness, all going to John the Baptist to be baptized. Again, understand, for repentance, uh, in a sense of preparing their hearts to see and hear the Lord. Baptism was not a real common practice within the Jewish culture. There was a number of washings. There was a point of baptism. Sometimes it was immersion that might involve a proselyte, a non-Jew becoming a Jew. But this was, was something new. And this idea of baptism, the way it comes across and the place where it was being done in the Jordan implies just the way we think of baptism, to be put under the water and to be brought up. And whether they were put under the water this way and brought up, this way or brought up, it doesn't. The idea was that they were immersed in the water. The people were coming willingly, but when the Sadducees and the Pharisees show up, the reason why they're showing up is is to see what's going on. But they're also they've heard about this baptism, and it's an offense to them. No. Jew needs this. We are the children of Abraham. That is implied by just their very presence of showing up. John catches that. Don't, you don't miss that. He catches that. They don't need this. What is going on, John? Who are you? They don't even get a chance to say anything. John looks at them and he says, You brood of vipers. I mean, it's, it's one thing just to be called children of snakes. I mean, it's, it's, it's brood is children of snakes, but it, it, it's a horde of children, a brood. Uh, you, you brood of vipers. And I had not caught this before. This definitely parallels Jesus' statement in John chapter 8, where Jesus tells the, the Jews, if you were really children of Abraham, you'd know me. But since you're rejecting me, that tells us who your father really is. Your father isn't God. You're not children of Abraham. Your father is the devil. See here the parallel. He calls them 
children of a serpent, children of a viper, a poisonous snake. He's not, you know, I mean, he's, talk about throwing the, 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 the worst thing he could think of to say to them. He just did it. He couldn't say anything more offensive to them. Well, he could because he implied it. You need to be baptized too. Um, their argument again would have been, Abraham is our father. He's saying, that's not enough. It takes more than just saying something about who you are. Where's the fruit? Jesus basically said the same thing to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He, said, he was saying that there's, there's no fruit coming from you. There's nothing showing that you are sincerely seeking the face of God. Or your lives wouldn't be the way they are. Remember when he rebuked the Pharisees for all their faithfulness and tithing and their refusal to take care of their parents? You know how they got around that? They called it Corbin. They designated all of their resources to the serving of God, even though they could draw for them all they wanted for themselves. But that meant they couldn't use them to help anybody else. And so their parents were going unattended. Jesus said, yeah, that's unacceptable. You see, there, there, there was no actions, there was no deeds with their confession that we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, the, the children of the God of Isaac, Jacob, and, and Abraham. There's, there's, no, there's no fruit And so he called them a brood of vipers, fruitless, and needing this baptism as much as anybody. He basically goes on in, in verse uh, uh, 10, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit, it's cut down and thrown into the fire. Now what's he just called them? Brood of vipers. He's implied that there's no fruit in their lives. And now he's saying they're, they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. They're going to receive the worst judgment. Then he, he says, I baptize you, if you were willing, with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He says, I've, I've got a, a, a single mission here. To baptize you, to prepare you to see, receive, and hear the Son of God. The, he didn't put it that way, but to, to hear the Lord. Preparing the way of the Lord. Getting your heart right. For He who is coming after me. And then he makes that very famous statement. He says, he's mightier than I am. I'm not even fit to carry his sandal or to tie his sandal, depending on, on which translation you have. But the idea was the humble part of a servant to tie or to take off a sandal and, and, and you know to be a servant at that level. He says, I'm not even worthy to be his footman. He comes. 
He's coming in the kingdom of in the power of the kingdom of God is implied because he says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This has not happened before. It's the core of our salvation. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit at the point of confession. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit at the point of confession. And then he says he's baptizing with the Holy Spirit, but he's also baptizing with fire. And there's no doubt, because of the context that we see here, uh, you know, he says, baptized with fire. And look at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is the sense of judgment tied to this idea. Jesus is baptizing with, with the Holy Spirit and, and, and fire. But I have a rough time relating it to judgment if, you, if the people are, are receiving this or are the ones that are going to open their ears and hear and listen. And it seems to me that maybe the word fire here is more acquainted with what we just sang with the idea of being cleansed, purified, sanctified, the power of the Holy Spirit changing lives. I can't, he says, my baptism isn't going to do that. My baptism is just here to unplug your ears. His baptism is to enter you into the kingdom of God, to sanctify, to fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork. Most of us have never seen a winnowing fork, unless you've seen it in a museum or somebody's, you know, collection of, of, of antiquated farming tools. But it's, it, it can be even a branch with, with, with a spread of, of, of branch, little branches off of it uh, that, you know, that has been picked specifically for its, its shape. But it, the idea is that the wheat is on the, the floor. It's been threshed, which means the animals have either walked all over it, the people have walked all over it, or it's been ground down. But the threshing floor is the place where the, the, the wheat is crushed and the chaff is broken away from the wheat, but it's all still on the floor together. And a person comes by with his winnowing fork and scoops it up and throws it up into the air and the chaff blows away and the wheat comes down. And that's a process that they go over and over and over again until they have as close as they can to the refined, just, just the wheat. And it says very clearly what's going to happen with the wheat. It's going to be put into the barn. But the chaff, it's going to go to a place of unquenchable fire. I thought, why unquenchable fire? I don't, I, uh, you know, the, the chaff, you know, first off, we're talking something that's seasonal. So the, the fire burning the chaff at some point normally quits because Jesus is also using a metaphor here. Or John, I mean, is also using a metaphor here. He's wanting us to see that he is talking about the Jewish people the wheat being put into the barn are those who will listen and the chaff are those who close their ears. And unquenchable fire is another term for judgment. You know, John, it's interesting. He came with a warning and I, never, I, I, I know that it sounds, you know, to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand and see it as a warning, but it was a warning. Because the idea was, open your ears or lose it. There is a warning here. And, the, and, and it's tied to 
the, the idea of a promise. There's one who's coming that's greater than me. And, it, and it's coupled, if you will, with a demand. Repent. Open your ears and turn away from your sin. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist coming in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus said very clearly to his disciples that uh, if they were, they, the disciples were saying, doesn't Elijah have to come ahead of you? And he said, if you are willing to receive it, Elijah has come. And he was referring to John the Baptist. He goes on to talk about John the Baptist as the greatest men ever born of a woman. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, he, was, he was the ultimate prophet. And John was the ultimate of humility. When it came time to baptize Jesus, which we'll actually look at next week, but you know what he says. Not, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, we have to fulfill all things. And I won't get into the details of that, but now you see the humility of Jesus. He says, no, you baptize me. Today, the kingdom of heaven is in place. Somebody say, where? Here. We are all part of the kingdom of heaven. It's not a future point of reference for us. Anyone who has confessed with his mouth, believes in his heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and believes in Christ as his Savior, has entered into the kingdom of heaven. Are we arrived in the final context of it? No, not yet. But we have it in view. And it is our cry, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. Not to get out of a sick world dying and full of sin and decay, but to be in the presence of God eternally. And coupled with that, to see all the glory that's due Jesus' name finally given, where every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Our longing isn't to get out of this world, it's to be in that world and to see Jesus glorified in every way. I, 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 I often make, you know, day-to-day, uh, good days and bad days physically, and, and you turn around and say, I can't can't wait until I have that new body. It's true, I can't. I, I, I have to, but I, I don't. I, I, it could be today, and that would be fine. But that's me looking at it very, very personally from an almost selfish point of view. The reality is that my joy should be, in the phrase, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus, is to recognize the fullness of the kingdom of God complete. It's already in existence in the sense here being complete in a place where there is no shadow, a hint of darkness or sin. We are in the kingdom of God because Jesus, the light of God, the word of God, the son of God, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the word dwelt among us, became flesh and dwelt among us. It says very clearly in John 1, the light came into the darkness. 
darkness is, we don't get it. But to those who did, those become the children of God. The incarnation, the sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, tells us the kingdom of God is in place. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and all we are waiting for is that final trumpet call, that final day. And I, I look at it again with that picture of the symphony, that, that crescendo of a, of a great symphony is going to be topped with the trumpet call. And we will all hear it. We'll all be joined together. We will all share in the marriage feast. We will all share in, in the wine and the bread together in a whole new format. Jesus said he wouldn't share the wine and the bread until that time. And so when we share in communion every Sunday, what we're doing is saying, in a sense, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. We long for your kingdom, your glory. But in the meantime, thank you for dying for our sins and confessing our sins, cleansing, asking him to cleanse our hearts, and uh, always with that attitude of understanding. Without him, there would be no hope. As I always put it, if any part of my salvation is up to me, I'm in serious trouble. Jesus paid it all. Ask the ushers to, or to come forward to pass the communion out until we've all been served and we'll share it together. Our glorious King 
soul is ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a John the Baptist, in the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John the Baptist, after being questioned about who he was and all of this, it says, on the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, after me comes the man who ranks uh, before me because he was before me. Acknowledgement of Christ eternally. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Son of God, God in the flesh, sinless life, all for the purpose to go to the cross and say, it is finished. So that we will never know the wrath of our sin. He took it for us. At the supper that he shared with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to each of them as a reminder of his body, not only in the sense of being torn and, 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 and wounded and, 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 and broken on the cross, but the fact that he came in the flesh. We always see that in the bread. God incarnate. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We eat this in the remembrance that he came to become a man to die for us. And he asks us as often as we do it to do it in remembrance of him. Into the meal, he took the cup, and I'm assuming he basically held it up something like this and, and said, this is my blood poured out for you. And he said it was to purchase the covenant. He's speaking of the covenant of grace, the one that would be completed in the sense of purchase when he said it is finished. See, when it is finished, his blood was poured out, his life was given, the death that was necessary had occurred. The sinless, perfect lamb, without blemish, gave his life for us. And he asked us that we would do this in remembrance of him until he comes again. Father, we come again with grateful hearts. Lord, thankful hearts. 
knowing that the God of all salvation, the author of, of uh, the author of our salvation, the God of all creation, is our Savior. When we rest with that, there can't be any better place to rest. We thank you for your Word that has revealed you, has given us a a way to know you, cause us to to move this year in such a way as to draw closer to you, a stronger witness, bolder witness, but most of all, cause us just to seek your presence in our lives, not just a little bit, but more and more and more. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Cause us to rest in these truths that we realize you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And it's perfectly right to say, Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.